All right, if you have your Bible with you, we'd love for you to open it now to Acts chapter 6, verse 8. It's on page 914 in the Pew Bible. Today we're going to be discussing the story, uh, the ministry, the martyrdom of Stephen. It's a long story. This is a good one to have your Bible open for, uh, just so you can see the size and significance of the story. Acts 6, uh, verses 8 to 15, give us a little bit of a preamble. Uh, It tells us that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. It says that through him, the Holy Spirit was beginning to do uh, incredible signs and wonders. But that actually isn't what got Stephen killed. What got him killed was the speech, the sermon in the middle of the story. And that takes up most of chapter 7. And then at the end, uh, in chapter 8, you'll see sort of the, the impact or the overflow of that event, that spontaneous martyrdom. What got the Jewish people so upset about Stephen was not the signs and wonders that he did. As he said, uh, it was his speech. You remember last week, I think we mentioned, Stephen was appointed as one of the seven. So he was uh, appointed as a leader of the church to the Greek-speaking Jewish community. And that put him in conflict with the leaders of the Jewish synagogue. And that conflict became quite bitter and ended in death. So that's the story, and then, as I mentioned, at the center of the story, there is this speech, and it's enormous. Uh, It's longer than anything uh, recorded that Peter said. It's longer than anything recorded in terms of what the Apostle Paul said. And uh, we mentioned last week that the Gospel of Luke, if you have your Bible with you and you can kind of just take a look, the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles are about the same length, they're about the same size. And we think that's because of the length of scroll that Luke had access to. So obviously choices had to be made. What stories are we going to include? What's happening? Someone's giving me a... should use this now. So the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles are about the same size. So choices obviously had to be made. Stories were left on the cutting room floor. We don't know everything we'd like to know. This is what Luke thinks we need to know. And so if you're thinking through that lens, then you've got to be asking yourself, why in the world does Luke give this story so much prime real estate in the Acts of the Apostles? Uh, what is it about this story? What, is it, it, what function is it serving in the narrative? What What role does it play? So that's what we're going to look at. We're going to ask the question, what did Stephen say? But then we're going to zoom out a little bit and ask the question, why is this story so significant? So let's get started. Uh, Hopefully you brought a snack. Hopefully you're nice and comfortable. We got this thing going on and figured out. So we're ready to go. Take a deep breath because this is a big chunk of text. We're going to start at Acts 6, 8. We're going to read all the way through to Acts 8, verse 4. Hear now the word of the Lord. And Stephen full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place 
and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, where he, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt And he died, he and our fathers. They were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Man, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, 
where he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they returned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand... Make all these things, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. 
And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I wonder if that is the longest consecutive scripture passage that we've read in church in the last 17 years that I've been here. It may indeed be one of them. That is a large chunk of scripture. And so obviously, if we're going to read a chunk of scripture like that, we're going to need to be economical in terms of the observations that we make. We'll content ourselves with two angles of inquiry here. We'll talk about Stephen's sermon in particular and Stephen's story in general. Let me start with the sermon, because as I've mentioned, it was the sermon that got Stephen killed. In the 53 verses that Luke devotes to summarizing this sermon, two points in particular rise to the surface. The first one is this. Stephen is claiming that the Jewish people have a long history of rejecting their redeemers. He conducts a pretty exhaustive Old Testament survey. It's, by the way, it's kind of interesting to, to notice how the apostles, Stephen's not an apostle, but how, how the early church preached. You understand, of course, that they couldn't say, you know, everyone open your Bible to John 3.16. Uh, they didn't have John 3.16. They were living John 16. They were, speak, they, they, they were in the time that these things were happening. So they preached from the Old Testament. And a lot of times it appears that they did these kind of long-running surveys to kind of show how the arc of the Old Testament story landed on Jesus. Pretty interesting to observe that. But he, he does this kind of thing. He walks through the Old Testament story of the people of Israel in order to draw out this idea that the Jewish people have always rejected their redeemers. So what surprise is it that they rejected Jesus? Their rejection of Jesus is just the last you know, act in a long chain of events that all function according to the same basic pattern. Stephen reminds them that during the patriarchal era, their forefathers hated and persecuted the Redeemer that God sent to them, Joseph, of course. We were reading about this story last week in the RMM Bible reading plan. God had anointed Joseph, had given him particular gifts, had positioned him, and he was going to use Joseph to preserve his family from poverty and famine. The climax of that story is found in Genesis 45 when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. He says, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Of course, you remember that in, in one sense, it was his brothers that sent him to Egypt. Remember, they, first they threw him down a well. They thought it would be fun to kill him. Uh, and, uh, and then, then they thought, well, why should we just kill him when we could actually make money off of his death? So they sold him to a bunch of Ishmaelite uh, slave traders who then ended up selling him to Potiphar in Egypt, and so he ended up in 
Egypt. That's how you treated the first deliverer that God sent to you, Stephen says. And, and it didn't stop there because then once you fell into slavery in Egypt, God sent you another redeemer and you rejected him as well. He's talking about Moses. This is a pattern for you. This is a pattern. Your rejection of Jesus fits it perfectly. You consistently reject and persecute, mistreat, and even murder the saviors, redeemers, prophets, and deliverers that God sends. The second thing he says is no less cutting. Uh, By the way, if you are interested in how to preach a sermon that is almost certain to get you killed, I hope you're taking notes. Second thing he says is no less cutting. He says, the Jewish people have an idolatrous and overly local understanding of God. In each of the eras that he walks through, uh, he's careful to point out that God's presence and activity are in no way confined to the physical territory of Israel. He starts his story by reminding them that the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia modern-day Iraq, right? Then he spends a fair bit of time reminding them of all the ways that God was active in Egypt. Talks about that. And then near the end of his speech, he reminds them that the temple in Jerusalem was never meant to function as a cage for God. Quotes Psalm 11.4, where God says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? He reminds them that God had to rebuke this tendency, their idolatrous and overly local understanding of him, even in the Old Testament. Think about it. If you're you're an Old Testament reader, you remember that at many times, at many points in the Old Testament story, the Jewish people acted as though they kind of had God, you know, uh, in a bind, that that God had, had obligated himself to them and therefore, you know, he was kind of on the hook. And they treated the temple as though it was a sort of rabbit's foot, a talisman. And so a prophet would say, hey, you better smarten up or God's going to send, you know, so-and-so to wipe you out. And they'd say, hey, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Right? Like, we've, we've got God in a box. We've got God in a cage. He's obligated to us. Think how many times God had to rebuke that tendency. Stephen, again, says this is how you've always been. You've you've always had a very small view of God. You've always wanted to have a very small view of God. You never let God speak for himself. While Moses was up on the mountain hearing from God, you were down in the valley making an idol so that you could worship and serve God the way you wanted to, on your own terms, so that you could control him. When he started annoying you, you could put him in a box and close the door. This is who you are. He says, you are idolatrous, short-sighted, and tribal, and you always have been. Now, remember, the charge against Stephen was that he was speaking against the temple and the law, or Jewish customs in particular. We read the charge in Acts 6, verse 13. The witnesses said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So when they brought him to trial, the high priest asked, are these things so? Is is your religion going to diminish the the place and priority of the temple? Is is your religion 
going to change all of our cherished customs as Jewish people. That's what they're asking. And Stephen says, yeah, you better believe it. You better believe it. Jesus is the temple now. Jesus is our teacher now. Jesus is our leader. Jesus is our nation. Jesus is everything. And I'm not surprised that you rejected him because you always reject the redeemers that God sends, and you have always revered this temple and this law as if those things were ends of themselves instead of temporary means. You never got it, so color me shocked if you don't get it today. That's what he says. That's the speech. And like I said, it is the longest speech in the Acts of the Apostles. By a country mile, I ran the word count. It's five and a half times as long as Peter's sermon to the household of Cornelius, which is a pretty significant event. That's the first time the gospel was preached to a purely Gentile audience. It seems very important. Five and a half times longer than that. It's four and a half times as long as Paul's sermon on Mars Hill, which presents kind of a model for how to engage with pagan worldviews. So again, that feels pretty important. It's two and a half times as long as Paul's speech to the Jewish crowd in Acts 22. And then it's twice as long as Paul's speech before Agrippa and Festus, where Paul was speaking truth to power. Again, feels pretty important. So why in the world does Luke assign so much significance to this speech? Why does he give it such real estate in the heart of the Acts of the Apostles? Stephen wasn't even an apostle. So what is so significant about the story? I want to zoom out a little bit as we turn our attention to that question. I want to look at Stephen's story as a whole, try to figure out what makes it so important. I think the first thing we can say here with some confidence is that the story of Stephen is significant because it establishes an expectation of rejection and death for those who follow Jesus. If you look like Jesus and you talk like Jesus then you may die like Jesus. That seems to be the basic message here. I don't think you have to be a a great Bible reader to figure that out. That seems to be right on the surface. I'm sure you noticed just in in the reading we just did all the little similarities between the death of Stephen and the death of Jesus. Those are pretty intentional. They're both convicted on the basis of false testimony. Both cry out to God at the end of their lives for God to receive their spirit. Both pray for their persecutors. Stephen says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Again, those similarities are not accidental. Luke is making a not-so-subtle point. He's saying, if you look like Jesus, if you talk like Jesus, then you may die like Jesus. The New Testament makes absolutely no effort whatsoever to soft-sell that expectation. Because, of course, it comes originally from Jesus himself. Jesus in John 15 said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus makes it pretty clear here. If you stand opposed to the spirit of the age, then don't be surprised if the world hates you. 
servant is not greater than the master. If you follow Jesus, then you should expect opposition and hostility from the world. That's the general pattern. Peace, majority status, cultural privilege, those things are the exception. But hostility, opposition, marginalization, and occasionally even martyrdom, those things are the general norm. And the general norm may be coming back to our experience here in North America. Are you ready for that? We, um, in our B1 this, this past week on uh, Thursday night, we were, uh, the topic, we're going through all the characteristics that are required of a leader in the church as they show up in 1 Peter 3 and, uh, and in Titus 1. We've been kind of going through them because, of course, the baseline for all leadership in the church is character. So we're starting with, uh, with character. And uh, one of the character traits that's mentioned in those lists is sober-mindedness. Sober-mindedness is this idea of, of having a mindset that reflects where you are in the process, understanding how things end, and living now in a way that reflects that, right? Being engaged and aware. That's the basic idea. So I had them read 1 Peter 1, 13. But here's the thing. I had them read it in the old King James Version. Because uh, there's nothing quite like the old King James Version of 1 Peter 1, 13. Is anybody, you know... You, you, I won't have you shout it out, but if you are old enough to remember the old King James and you have a fair bit of scripture memorized, you probably know this anyway. He says, gird up the loins of your mind. Have you ever heard that expression? Gird up the loins of your mind and be sober-minded. That's what he, what he says. It's an interesting expression. It's perfect. Gird up the loins of your mind. Now, when you get into a modern English translation like the NIV or the ESV, it just says, you know, prepare your mind for action which is no fun at all, right? Uh, gird up the loins of your mind. I mean, you should have that verse. If you're going to get a tattoo, have that. I don't, I just, I'm kidding, but it would be a good one, right? Conversation starter. Don't do that. Don't make that your takeaway. But so I explained to them, but you know what this means? Gird up the loins of your mind. Well, in, uh, in the ancient world, you can still see this in India, but in the ancient world, men typically wore kind of like a long robe toga experience sort of a thing. And so if you needed to do anything, if you were going to dig a hole or if you were going to have to defend yourself against an attacker, you would first have to gird up the loins of your mind. That's more action than you wanted, right, out of the preacher this morning. But that's what you'd have to do. You'd have to get everything gathered up around here so that you were ready for action. And that is literally what Peter is saying we need you to do. We need you to gird up the loins of your mind. We need you to get in the game. We need you to start thinking with some urgency. We need you to understand the context. We need you to understand the hazards, the challenges, so that you can begin to think and act accordingly. Because the situation is urgent. And I think it's about to get more so. Uh, One of the leadership tasks... I would say, in the church on the other side, right? That's what we've called this whole series, the church on the other side. One of the great leadership tasks in the church on the other side is going to be getting North American Christians to understand that they are now living, breathing, serving, and following Jesus in a different world. We've moved from a comfort context to a crisis context. Requires different kinds of thinking. It's, it's a different world out there, and we need people to be prepared for that. Are you? You know, there are only a handful of people in this room 
who have ever had to pay any kind of price for following Jesus. I'm not a prophet, but I'll make a prediction. We won't be able to say that in this room 20 or even 10 years from now, should the Lord tarry. And so a new mindset is required. You've got to count the cost. Second thing I think we want to say here is that this story is important because it reminds us that pressure and persecution are part of the plan. Look at how Luke frames the story. So right after Stephen dies at the end of chapter 7, if you've got your Bible open, you can see that right at the bottom of chapter 7. It's where Stephen dies. Now look at what Luke says at the start of chapter 8. And Saul, and pause there, if you're new to the Bible and you're wondering, who's this Saul fellow? We sometimes say, you know, Saul became a Christian and then he changed his name to Paul. That is not, not true, and if you keep reading in Acts, you're going to see that. Saul continued to use that name Saul after he was a Christian. What happens, though, is when he goes into Gentile territory, he starts being called Paul. Um, so most people in those days, if, if they were Roman citizens, had three names. There's a name they would have been called at home by their mama, uh, right? And then there was usually a, a sort of a family name and then a, a name you might use out in the culture. And so Paul is rotating from Jewish name to name that he would use out in the Greco-Roman world. That's why Saul becomes Paul. But Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. I'm sure you've all heard the expression, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Well, that's exactly what you're seeing in the story. The death of Stephen, as tragic as it was, led to two absolutely massive events. It led, first of all, to the conversion of the Apostle Paul. And then it led, secondly, to the extension of the gospel mission beyond the confines of Jerusalem. This day, tragic as it was, represented a critical hinge in the story of the movement. What felt like a setback was in reality positioning them for a great leap forward. And that's how it often works in the providence of God. We've seen that again and again and again. And I think we saw that to some extent over COVID, didn't we? What felt like a setback actually may have positioned the church for a great leap forward. COVID shut our buildings down, which forced us to go onto the internet. Now, was that what we wanted? No. I mean, is, that, is anybody saying that was fun? My goodness, that was the, what's the opposite of fun? Uh, and then multiply that by 10 and then drive it into my skull with a hammer. That's what COVID was, okay? So no one is saying we wanted that, but it did force the church to do some innovating. During the first phase of the pandemic, during the lockdown, so you remember the first phase, we had a lockdown started on March, I think it was March 15th was the first service where we did in here. It was just Tom, Thomas, you remember that, Thomas? It was me, Thomas, and Evan in here. And uh, that was the day I figured out it's really hard to preach with conviction to two young men who already love Jesus and believe everything you're saying, and there's no one else in the room. <laughs> that lockdown went on for a long time. Now, interestingly, during that lockdown, we averaged over 1,000 screens every Sunday. 
which is incredible. And some of those screens probably had two, three, four, five, six people behind them. We don't know. We, by our, it was hard to get accurate numbers, but by our estimates, we had about 2,500 or 3,000 people tracking with us every Sunday. Now, those were not all our own people. I don't think we have 3,000 people, even people who come once a year, right? So those were not all our own people. And we started hearing, we started getting emails. I would get emails from, from pastors saying, hey, Pastor Paul, just so you know, we've directed our people to watch uh, your service uh, at Cornerstone over the lockdown because we don't have the technology. What was happening during the first stage of the lockdown was larger churches that already had a little bit of tech capacity were serving not just their own people, but also the people going to smaller churches who were trying to figure it out. Then if you remember, we came out of lockdown, and for a little while we were on these, all these crazy protocols and everything like that. And then on December 26th, 2020, you remember we went back into lockdown? That was the, the we were worried we weren't going to get Christmas in and all that kind of stuff. And they, you know, we got through Christmas, and then they put hard lockdown on December 26th, which is 10 months basically after the first lockdown, almost 10 months. What was interesting there is that during the second hard lockdown, our screen averages per service were down by 25%. And that doesn't mean that fewer of our people were tracking. What that means is that more and more of those smaller churches figured out technology. And of course, we would come into lockdown and out of lockdown. It was a whole big nightmare, and you've probably forgotten, right? Good for you. But here's the point. By the end of the pandemic, Churches of 25 people had figured out how to buy a camera and start a YouTube channel. Do you think that might come in handy for the last phase of the Great Commission? I think maybe it will. See, that's how it works in the providence of God. What the devil means for harm, God uses for good. The devil slams a window over there, and the Holy Spirit kicks open a door over there. And inch by inch, and by hook or by crook, the kingdom of heaven advances. It's exactly what Jesus was talking about in that strange little parable in Matthew 13. It's a one-sentence parable, so we never read it. Mind you, maybe to make up for the fact that we just read like three chapters this morning, we'll read it next week. I don't know. Here we go. We could read this whole parable right here. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, that's yeast, is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leaven. That's a metaphor, obviously. Jesus is saying a little pressure over here moves the gospel over there. And then gospel lift and growth over here can be folded back as impact and invitation over here. Interestingly, that's how the Apostle Paul came to understand the mystery of the initial Jewish rejection of the gospel. He wrestled with that. Why is it that Paul, Paul in his mind, is wrestling? Why is it that all the Gentiles of, of the world are eager to hear what I have to say? They're eager for this message of Jesus. But all my Jewish friends and colleagues, they, they, every time I start talking about it, they try to kill me. Paul wrestled with that. And this is where he landed. He came to understand that actually in the providence of God, the initial Jewish hardness to the gospel threw open the door to, to Gentile mission. Had Listen, I trust you understand this. Had the persecution of Stephen that we just read not happened in Jerusalem, had it not been that stark, had it not been that vicious, the church in all probability would never have left Jerusalem. 
that would have been home base forever. And Christianity would always have been some kind of Jewish sect. But there was pressure there. And that moved the gospel over here. And Paul says, all right, I get that. I get that. That's the providence of God. But he's saying, so, okay, I'm out here. But now I'm going to make as much of this ministry as I can. I want to see every Gentile within a 1,000 miles praising the name of Jesus because that will eventually rebound as argument and impact back over here with the Jews. That's what he said, Romans 11, 13 to 15. Inasmuch them as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? You seeing that? Paul says, okay, so if the first stage of the process is, is God sort of pressing down on the Jewish door, keeping that door locked, firing us over here to the Gentiles, if I can make a big mess and stink and noise over here with the Gentiles, maybe that rebounds over here, makes the Jews jealous, and then if the first stage was their rejection, what will the second stage be when they accept the gospel but life from the dead for the world? Interesting argument. Paul understood that every fold in this process amplifies power and vitality. Now, applied to our own contemporary situation, I think that's got to be reason for tremendous hope. As we in the West begin to turn away from our Christian heritage, but as the church in the West continues to pour resources into the church in the developing world, people here many centuries combined. Did you know that? There is a Persian revival happening right now. And you want to know something funny that goes back and dovetails with the point we were just making about COVID? Throughout that entire 20-year revival, they have not been allowed to have public gatherings like this. Do you know where they do church? <gasps> Heaven forbid, online. Now, is that an argument for online church? No, any more than COVID is an online church. I'm just saying Necessity is the mother of invention. Have you ever heard that expression before? And people under pressure learn to innovate. And by hook or by crook, God uses it all, and the kingdom of God advances. Listen, the bottom line is this. Nobody likes pressure and persecution, but they have always been part of the plan. Pressure is how you get diamonds. You know that, right? You take a lump of carbon... You subject it to incredible pressure over enormous lengths of time, and you get something that is unimaginably strong. In fact, the word diamond comes from the Greek word adamus, which means invincible. So pressure isn't fun, but pressure makes us strong, and persecution results in innovation and movement. We don't seek those things, but here's the point, church. Neither should we be afraid of those things. This is just how the sovereign Lord of the universe stirs the pot. This is how he calls forth strength in his people. This is how he works the yeast through the whole batch of dough. This is how he brings salvation, life, and renewal to people from every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet earth. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, you do all things well. Your providence is amazing to us. And Lord, I pray that this story that we've read today
would put some steel in our spine, would help us to gird up the loins of our minds, would help us to pay a price for following Jesus in the next decade. Lord, it won't be fun, but at the very least, let no one in this room be surprised. Let everyone right now count the cost, as Jesus told us to do. Don't start building a tower unless you figured out if you could finish it. Lord, I pray that today, everyone in this room, before they leave, would ask the question, am I willing to follow Jesus in the next 10 years, even though it is almost certain to hurt? But Lord, I also pray that they would be encouraged to consider that whatever pressure, whatever difficulties they face, will in your brilliant providence be turned towards the good of your people and the progress of the gospel and glory and honor to the name of Jesus. May that be true in Aurelia. May that be true in Canada. May that be true in Israel. Lord, we're still looking for that. We are still looking for their embrace of the gospel that will bring life from the dead. Lord, I can't help but wonder if that means that when the Jewish people as a whole embrace the gospel, it will add fuel to the last finishing kick of the Great Commission. May that be so. May it be so. And may we see it in our day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.